Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. Hey you, thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or are a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com workingovertime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content, chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com workingovertime. Now let's fire up the time machine. Hurtling unseen, hundreds of miles from the Earth, a polished metal sphere the size of a beach ball passed over the world's continents and oceans one day last week. As it circled the globe for the first time, traveling at 18,000 miles per hour, the U.S. was blissfully unaware that a new era in history had begun, opening a bright new chapter in mankind's conquest of the natural environment, and a grim new chapter in the Cold War. The news came in a broadcast by Moscow Radio, and it got to Washington in an ironic way. At the Soviet embassy on 16th Street that evening, some 50 scientists of 13 nations, members of the International Geophysical Year Rocket and Satellite Conference, were gathered at a cocktail party. After the vodka, scotch, and bourbon started to flow, New York Times reporter Walter Sullivan got an urgent phone call from his paper, hurried back to whisper in the ear of a U.S. scientist. A moment later, physicist Lloyd Bergner rapped on the hors d'oeuvres table until the hubbub quieted. I wish to make an announcement, he said. I am informed by the New York Times that a satellite is in orbit at an elevation of 559 miles. I wish to congratulate our Soviet colleagues on their achievement. Excerpt from the launch of Sputnik 1, as reported by Time Magazine, October 1957. Hey there. It's Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. I've always been something of a space junkie. I love the nerdy tech, the mystery, the sheer audacity of rigging equipment and people and sending them into the wild reaches of space to learn more about this vast environment through which our planet floats and to figure out how to make life on Earth better for it. And for the past 60-odd years, following the trail blazed by Sputnik, we've put thousands of satellites into orbit, looping sentinels that serve critical functions in modern society transmitting TV and radio signals, tracking the weather, and providing communications and positioning channels that serve a range of military and civilian needs. Today, we're going to talk about one such technology, which has transformed everyday life for the 4 billion people, that's nearly half the globe's population, who use smartphones. And that's the GPS tracking feature, which means most of us couldn't get lost even if we wanted to and which is making good old paper maps, you know, the ones you never could fold right anyway, pretty much obsolete. 
My guest, Richard Easton, brings a unique viewpoint on the roots of this innovation, having grown up as the son of a Naval Research Laboratory's physicist who led the charge in developing America's first satellites in the 1950s in the Silicon Valley of its time. So, get those white jackets out, we're headed to the lab. Richard has written and lectured widely on the subject of GPS, addressing groups including the British Interplanetary Society, the Explorers Club, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and Air Force Space Command. He co-authored GPS Declassified, From Smart Bombs to Smartphones. And he experienced the space program up close and personal from the tender age of two, when his father brought home Vanguard One, one of the first satellites ever to reach orbit, and the oldest one still up there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. Great to be joining you. So in the modern day, I think it's safe to say that there's not a person on the planet who couldn't say what GPS does, but I don't know how many of us understand at all how it works. Could you explain the science behind GPS, Richard, in just a sentence or two? So GPS uses 24 minimum satellites in 12-hour orbits, and they send out signals constantly. The signals include the time when, the, when it left the satellite, and your receiver interprets it as the time when it arrived. So the difference between the two tells you the distance between you and the satellite. And with four satellites in sight, it solves for the three-dimensional position of the receiver, plus gives a clock synchronization. Oh, so, okay. So can I just, uh, is yeah. the receiver, for example, my cell phone? Yes. Ah, got it. I love it. So we all have this incredible scientific capability in our pockets. It's incredible, isn't it? Yes, yes. And one thing we talk about is the giant shrinking of the receiver. I mean, GPS system, uh, its success, has, the technological transformation into smartphones has driven a fair bit of its success. Yeah, amazing. I mean, you know, you, you see these pictures of the, the supercomputer and then the mini computer, which only filled one room, right? <laughs> At one point. <laughs> yes, yes. The, and and it's, it's both profited from the advances in technology, but it's also spurred on the advances in technology. One of the problems my father saw in 1964 was for a GPS type system to work, he had to get atomic clocks small enough, uh, space-hardened in the satellites. And that was a long, involved process. So, Richard, you come by all of this knowledge honestly, right? I mean, you kind of soaked it up from childhood because your father was very involved in these research projects when you were growing up, correct? Yes. Yeah. Could you just quickly tell us your father's, your father's involvement in these projects? He joined the Naval Research Lab in 1943. In 1952, he joined Project Viking, uh, working mainly on tracking the rocket. And in 1955, he co-wrote the proposal for Project Vanguard, which uh, got the 
got the okay from the government to launch the first American satellite. Uh, for Project Vanguard, he worked on the Minitrack tracking system, which uh, tracked the satellite. I mean, they were, there were proposals to do optical tracking, but detecting the radio wave from the transmitter in the satellite was much easier. And he also designed Vanguard 1, which was the small satellite that was launched in March 1958, the fourth satellite to reach orbit and the oldest one still up there. It's amazing. And that's the one that came home for family pictures, right? <laughs> yes, yes. He used to tinker with it on our dining room table and he worked on the chin strap to release the, the satellite from the third stage. Uh, working at home in 1958, you didn't have COVID, but you could bring a small satellite home. You know, Vanguard <laughs> One oh, that's, uh, that's weighed, about, weighed about three and a half pounds. It was a small one, but it, uh, it was the first to carry solar cells, and the transmitter worked for six years. So it was very successful for what it was intended to do. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to hear more about your experiences of all of this technological evolution through the through um, growing up in the household with your dad. But first, it would be great if you can just give us a little, I call it the 101, you know, what was going on generally in the United States and in the world at this time? And were there any sort of cultural or political trends that influenced the emergence of these technologies at this time? Well, obviously, a rocket which can launch a satellite can also carry an atomic bomb or a hydrogen bomb. So the people in the West immediately recognized the significance of Sputnik 1. And uh, there was a very ambitious politician, Lyndon Johnson, who wanted to become president. Well, I've heard of him. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, landslide Linden, he, um, he, Truman had used hearings during World War II to raise his recognition, and Johnson held hearings after Sputniks 1 and 2 were launched to do a similar thing for himself. Uh, obviously, the U.S. was um, in an ideological battle with communism and the Soviet Union. And Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, quickly recognized that Sputnik was a huge propaganda success. Uh, in fact, after, Van after Vanguard TV3 blew up, uh, the Soviet Union offered the U.S. help, uh, since we were obviously a third world country in terms of rocket technology. So, so uh, some people have called it the first space race, and it prefigured what happened in the 1960s right. with the U.S., you know, with Kennedy's announcing within the end of the decade, we'll land a man successfully on the moon. And as Wally Seurat said, uh, return him safely to Earth. The astronauts thought that part of the sentence was very important. Um, so there was space was part of the the. Uh, ideological competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And then in the 1960s, you had the Vietnam War 
come up and the U.S. having problems with trying to deliver bombs to uh, wipe out North Vietnamese bridges, for example. They'd launch attack after attack and the weapons were so imprecise that, that uh, they were not capable and you'd lose many airmen and a lot of collateral damage. So yeah, the, I was just gonna say that probably didn't always work out well for local civilians. So the Pentagon in 1968 uh, set up criteria for a successor system to the first NAVSAT transit, which would be global, three-dimensional, I mentioned three dimensions, all weather and accurate within 50 feet. And my father had started in 1964, a system called Timation, which uh, could do all that. And the Air Force had its rival system and they unified the two systems in 1973. And the, um, the Navy and the Air Force have argued almost since day one as to who did what. So, uh, so uh, in fact, they were arguing before the system was accepted by the Pentagon. So it's- Yeah, uh, well, welcome to politics. Science is not immune. You mentioned that your father worked on two major projects, Project Viking and Project Vanguard. Can you tell us the key goals of each of these projects, starting with Project Viking? Well, the upper atmosphere was a huge mystery at the time. So launching sounding rockets which with instruments on board could tell you things about the concentration of cosmic rays at different altitudes. They were trying to get positions of islands in the South Pacific. And with the instruments of the day, it was very hard to get precise measurements. So they realized that a satellite could be used in a sense as an artificial moon to, um, to give you much more accurate positions. So in a sense, even in 1955, they could see that satellites could be used for a GPS-type system. And how about the Project Vanguard? Well, Vanguard, in a sense, was much broader than Viking because you had to work on the rocket, which in, was a three-stage rocket. It had to get a, a satellite into orbit, 17,000 miles per hour, uh, oh, that's which, crazy. <laughs> which meant it had to develop a lot more power. So you had the people working on the rocket. You had people working on this space tracking system because they had to, to find out if the satellite had successfully gotten into orbit and then tracking it over time. So if you got to get up to 17,000 miles per hour, if you're if you're at the equator shooting due east, you've already got a thousand miles there. So it's an advantage to launch to the east and Cape Canaveral is about as far south as you can get in the continental US. So it's a good site to launch a rocket. And it also has the advantage since you're launching it to the east, it goes over the Atlantic Ocean. So if something, oh, something happens- Something goes wrong, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Less so, so you have the people working on the rocket, you have the people working on the space tracking system, and you have the people working on the satellites. Uh, three Vanguard satellites made orbit, 
The first one, designed by my father, uh, did experiments on the internal and external temperature of the satellite. They could see from how the satellite orbit changed over time, how concentrated molecules were in the very thin atmosphere at 300 miles in altitude. Um, and also they could use it to get positions of, of land in the South Pacific where there were no, no other land nearby. And my father was working on Minitrack. So they were working with the Army Corps of Engineers to set up this series of, of tracking stations, again, from roughly 40 degrees north to 40 degrees south. So they How figured- many miles is that roughly? It's about 4,800 miles long. Oh, so we're talking, this is massive. They're, they're like- developing tracking stations that that cover a, a huge portion of the globe. Yes. Fascinating. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. All right. And so they had their plates full on both these projects. Is it possible to just bring us down to the level of one of their labs and kind of, you know, reconstruct even hypothetically the kinds of work they would actually do day in and day out to accomplish this incredible technological breakthrough. I know one comment my dad made was that people were working long hours. <laughs> yeah, <And> I bet. <laughs> as uh, you know, people started working later and later hours, and finally, instead of working during the day, they were working during the evenings. And uh, one thing about Project Vanguard was that they got official approval in September 1955. Uh, just over two years later, Sputnik 1 is launched on October 4th, 1957, and the pressure got much greater. But they actually launched their first successful satellite in March of 1958. So that's 30 months after they started working on the program. So so they're working crazy hours, and it's yes. a pretty con compacted time schedule. And so when we, when we say they worked on this, what were they doing? Were they sitting at their desk doing math? Were they building prototypes? Yeah, how does a physicist preparing for this sort of work, you know, do that work? What do they do? I mean, part of it, too, was negotiating with other services. The Air Force ran Cape Canaveral, and... Um, a major general from the Air Force, they explained to him what they were doing and he was very supportive, but you had a clash of cultures. The Naval Research Lab where my dad worked, all the emphasis was on supporting the research, as little bureaucracy as possible. The Air Force was a much more by the book business. So you have the clash of the two cultures and fortunately, uh, there was an Air Force colonel that was appointed as liaison who helped translate what the Navy typically did versus what the Air Force needed to get it done. So they had to set up an infrastructure at Cape Canaveral for the rockets, for the tracking instruments. They also had to liaison with Martin, which had built the Viking rocket and was working on the first stage of Vanguard. But they had a problem. Right after 
Martin got the contract for and, and Vanguard. Is Martin, was this later Martin Lockheed? Is this that yes. aeronautics yes. company? Oh, okay, okay. So, yes. All right, that's one that just might be more familiar to some listeners. It, it certainly is to me. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but Martin also got a contract to work on the Titan ICBM and transferred some of their best engineers from working on Vanguard to, to working on Titan. So you have the clash that the, the priorities of their contractors were not the same as the priorities of Vanguard people. So sure. one of the dilemmas that Marty Votaw, who worked with my father, talked about was that they became prisoners of the schedule. So if a rocket was supposed to be shipped to Cape Canaveral, you know, on March 1st, they would ship it. Then they would find all sorts of problems at Cape Canaveral, which were much tougher to fix on site as opposed to in the uh, where they manufactured the the rocket. So, so you have all the pressures of the schedule, particularly after Sputnik One is launched, which leads to more delays. Uh, it's it's like having a hundred people do something is sometimes more complicated than having 10 people do it. So, yeah. so suddenly it got huge scrutiny from the press. And of course, Vanguard TV3 blowing up on December 6th, 1957, which happened to be the day before the Pearl Harbor anniversary. So uh, they got the nickname Flopnik. Um, <laughs> they got about four feet off the pad and blew up. Uh, but the satellite survived. Uh, they brought it really? to my father, and he, it was a little worse for wear. He put it in his little wood box, bought a seat for it on a commercial flight back to Washington. It sat on our dining room table overnight, <laughs> and you can now see it in the National Air and Space Museum. I love it. That's great. Most families, it's the kids who are who are tinkering and doing projects on the dining room table. Your dad sounds like he was kind of fun to be around. He, he was an amazing person. Though I've got to say our area in um, Oxon Hill, Maryland, uh, very close to the Naval Research Lab, we had a lot of parents who worked at NRL. So it was kind of like a Silicon Valley before its time. Very cool. Well, let's back up a little bit and I'd just love to hear about the role of a physicist in this time. Uh, you know, I mean, how, how did one become a physicist? What was the path generally? Well, my father graduated from Middlebury College uh, actually a semester early. He traditionally would have been uh, 1943, but with the war on, he graduated in December 42 and then studied for a semester at University of Michigan, which is where he met my father, my, where he met my mother. Um, so standard physics degree, but he said when he joined the lab, he was working on blind landings of aircraft, and a lot of it was just learning on the job. Marty Votaw, who I mentioned, worked for my father for a number of years, um, said he frequently wouldn't find wouldn't know where my dad was, and he would find him at NRL's library doing research. <laughs> so, so a lot of it 
you know, you just learned on the job. You had problems that you were faced with, you know, the tiny little Vanguard one. How do you find something useful that you can do with a satellite that uh, is about six inches across and weighs three and a quarter pounds? Yeah, I was amazed. I read your article about that and the size of it stunned me. It's, it's tiny. Um, but you can put transmitters in that, and they used the most sophisticated transistors of the day from Bell Labs and Western Electric. Uh, they had a problem, too. One of the transmitters was powered by batteries and the other by solar cells. And the batteries, you know, I mentioned all the problems with um, Viking 8 blowing up. You know, we, we remember the early space program like John Glenn, you know, how many times did they sit on the pad before they actually launched him? Well, they had the same problems with Vanguard. You know, rocketry was an untested uh, science at that time, was a developing science. And dad said, if they had the batteries hooked up the whole time, they'd be discharged by the time they were ready to launch this, the, the rocket. So they, they put in a plug that they could keep the battery pure until they were just ready to launch. First off, if you have solar cells and the transmitter works for six years, you can very accurately track it and again see how dense the very thin upper atmosphere is. And also you can be using it for... Um, for again, getting positions out in the South Pacific where there's no other land nearby. And of course, now there are proposals to uh, maybe SpaceX will send a capsule up to grab Vanguard One and see what the effect of 62 years in space has had on that satellite. I'm sure it's been hit by a lot of, you know, small bits of dust over those 62 years. So. That is actually stunning to think about, actually, that that's been up there so long. And and is that satellite, that one that was on your dining room table, is it one of the satellites that powers the GPS that so many of us rely on every day with our phones? Um, no, but, but its descendants do. It stopped transmitting in 1964. Now the current, oh, okay. It's just the, still out there. It's, it's, yes. it's out on holiday, an extended tour of the galaxy. <laughs> it's what some people inelegantly call space junk. Space it's, junk. Uh, <laughs> I love that. It's a real thing. Wow. And, and the three older satellites are Vanguard's one, two, and three. So, okay. um, so they're, they're three piece, you know, relics that are gradually telling you what the, the space environment is, you know, they've been up, all three of them have been up there more than 60 years. So they, uh, they are good tests of just, you know, one of the problems with the space station is, um, you know, there's so much space junk up there. Right. That occasionally they have to change its orbit and the astronauts go into the safest they might actually go in the capsules in case there's a catastrophic collision with the space station. So one of the big problems people are talking about today is there's so much space junk up there that, that there's 
a danger of a chain reaction collision that could make future space travel much more dangerous. Did you ever see or just get a sense from your dad about how these physicists worked together on these projects? I mean, was it kind of a solitary endeavor, each kind of going off and doing their own thing? Um, or was it more collegial group? It was, it was definitely more collegial. And you make friends that you work with on different projects over long periods of time. So Captain David Holmes was at ARPA, Advanced Research Projects Agency, now called DARPA, adding a defense in front of it. But it was set up by the Eisenhower administration right after Sputnik saying, gee, we've got to work on advanced technologies to make sure that we're not surprised by those Russians. And um, after Vanguard, my dad worked on the Naval Space Surveillance System, which was designed to um, track spy satellites. So I, I mentioned Minitrack, you know, about 4,800 miles long from uh, 40 degrees north to 40 degrees south. Minitrack depended on detecting the signal from the satellite. What happens with a spy satellite, which is quiet most of the time? Well, um, space surveillance had very powerful transmitters that could reflect off the satellite to the receiver. And David Holmes arranged for my father to get a very powerful transmitter in Lake Kickapoo, Texas. So he was instrumental in making that a success. And for you, in 1964, when my parents visited London, David Holmes came over from NATO headquarters in Belgium and they got together. And later in 1973, when he retired from the Navy, he started working for my dad on space surveillance and timation and GPS. So you make these long-term alliances with people. It's not yeah, necessarily- Yeah, it sounds like you certainly would get a lot farther that way as in so many other fields. You, you have to work as a team because it's too complex for any individual to do it all. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so, you know, what, what kind of risks were there in this work? And by that, you know, it doesn't sound like there were necessarily so many physical risks, but, you know, what's the biggest mistake one of these physicists could make? You're trying to build satellites that will work long-term and you're facing unknowns about what the space environment actually will be. So, so uh, you know, typically you'll hear of NASA projects that they expect to run for 90 days, but they probably build them so that they'll, their expectation it'll, is it'll work for at least a year or two. So you've always got some margin of error in your favor. Um, but I think the major problem is simply cancel projects. Uh, if you know, one of the people my father knew, Charlie Bossert, who designed the Atlas, you know, America's first ICBM, prior to working on rockets, he was working on various airplanes, and they just kept on being canceled. So uh, the vagaries of what government decides to fund and cancel 
our yeah, frequency sure. out of your control. Oh, I, I mean, this this is big, big bucks here. Like I'm just thinking about the great line from the right stuff. No bucks, no Buck Rogers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, my dad always said you, you need three things. You need the technology, you need the idea, and you need the money. And, yeah. you know, if you're Leonardo da Vinci, you can be talking about helicopters, but it's going to take hundreds of years for the technology to catch up with your ideas. Oh, I love that. That's, that's great. And I, I think I'd, I'd love to hear what you know about how those outside of the scientific and military community viewed scientists like your father, you know, and the work they were doing. With TV3 blowing up, uh, Martin's stock dropped, and there was you know, ridicule about it. But uh, the New Yorker did an interview in December 1957 with uh, various Vanguard people, including my father, and they were, they were not surprised by the failure. Um, you have a huge difference, though, between the people working in the military versus the people in NASA. I mean, NASA, you know, a lot of people are famous, uh, the people who worked in mission control in Apollo 13, for example. Uh, you know, there have been movies made about them. Whereas the military people are much more obscure. Uh, historian Dwayne Day has said that Charlie Bossert had a greater effect on the American space program than Werner von Braun. But I can tell you on Twitter, you type in Werner von Braun and you will find lots of hits from the last day. You type in Charlie Bossert and you won't find any. So, uh, the unsung the, heroes. <laughs> yes, much more obscure. So Richard, as we promised at the beginning, um, we're talking about all of this incredible research that, that took place in the mid 20th century, um, physicists working on these big projects funded by the government and um, performed by military personnel as well as scientists. Um, GPS is one of the key technologies that we know today that emerged directly from the work of these projects. Can you just trace a little bit of that direct line for us? Well, I mentioned that after Vanguard, my father worked on the Naval Space Surveillance System, which could track Soviet spy satellites. In April of 1964, he was talking with another scientist, Dr. Arnold Shostak. Uh, some people may know his son, Seth, who works on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI. So they were talking about the hydrogen maser, which was developed in 1960s, so four years before their conversation, and that it made passive ranging, which is how GPS works, you know, time difference equals distance between the satellite and receiver feasible. So my dad started working on that. You know, gee, what was the nature of atomic clocks in 1964? What did they cost? What were the problems in terms of ultimately putting them into satellites? And then uh, that uh, September, he was working on space surveillance stations in southern Texas and the problems of synchronizing the different space surveillance 
stations, and he realized, gee, I can put, use a clock and a satellite to do that. And by the way, that can also work for my passive ranging. So I have a solution to two problems, uh, making space surveillance, my space tracking system more accurate. And by the way, creating a navigation satellite system, new one, which he called Timation for time navigation. They launched their first satellite to test that, Timation 1, in 1967. They gave their first demonstration to the Pentagon that it would work that October at the John Erickson Memorial, which is very uh, close to the Lincoln Memorial. They got money. We were talking about funding, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Well, my dad got a lot of bucks. In fact, his branch at the Naval Research Lab basically supported his whole division. He got so many bucks. And in 1973, the Pentagon decided that they needed one system. Uh, they had my father's timation system, and you had the Air Force's 621B, and they unified the two systems got approval to start working on GPS in December 1973. Listening to you talk about the skepticism on sort of a technological level as the sort of roots of GPS were evolving, I have to ask too, just given the time period and, you know, what was going on politically and, you know, it's the Cold War, it's, you know, uh, McCarthyism and all of these things, was there any cultural pushback to the development of this kind of surveillance technology on a broad scale? I would say the cultural pushback came later. Um, we've certainly seen cases of police putting GPS uh, trackers on automobiles without a warrant. I know uh, my father was unhappy about that use and supported uh, a group in 2011 that was pushing back. So they're trying to keep the surveillance state from taking over is, is a challenge. Though I, I think during GPS's gestation period, um, there was so little knowledge about it and the implications that came with the internet and smartphones, um, those were, uh, were difficult to anticipate. Though I gotta say, Arthur C. Clarke, in a 1956 letter, uh, predicted a GPS-type system would develop within 30 years. So he was and, maybe- And how did scientists view that kind of prediction? Because I, I wanted to ask you how these scientists who worked with your father on these projects might have viewed GPS technology as it stands today. I think they would be amazed at how it's, uh, again, as I said, our problem is overuse of it, and people have been talking about getting uh, auxiliary systems in case GPS is jammed or spoofed. I mean, a, a significant solar storm like the Carrington event of 1859, which uh, interfered with a telegraph, you know, it's GPS of the day. Wow. Another... <laughs> a uh, significant solar storm could wipe out uh, GPS or GNSS satellites, the, uh, the three other major systems. And uh, Congress and the U.S. as a whole has been very slow 
to uh, to develop alternatives like enhanced Loran or better inertial navigation systems. So I think the fear is is they'll get serious only after we have a significant problem. And the surveillance state, I mean, people can opt out of apps. We've certainly found, I, I would not trust uh, Google or Alphabet as its parent company is called, or any of the big tech companies with my life. Uh, there've been too many cases where they said they didn't track certain things and then it was found out that they did. So. Uh, Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, just targeted advertising. I have to say, maybe I'm paranoid, but it's beyond just what I have um, searched on on a Google page. I I honestly find that things that I've talked about while my phone has been in my room, all of a sudden I'm seeing ads in my feed about some of those things, which I've never purchased before. I've never searched on Google. You know, you have to just wonder. Uh, how how much they are actually able to pick up from the other end. Yes, I um, I try to use um, search engines that don't track it. I try to try to minimize, but I'm the powers that be still know far more about my everyday behavior than I'd like like them to know. And of course, the Chinese social grading system. That that has huge potential for uh, for a degree of control, which uh, George Orwell in 1984 couldn't even have conceived of. And uh, so so these technologies, which have saved so many lives and have improved our economy so much, certainly have a potential for a huge amount of abuse. Yeah, I mean. What do you think your dad would have said about the GPS power and the navigational power you've got in your pocket with with an iPhone? Um, well, he lived through 2014, so he saw oh, a lot of it. He did. And okay. he, I remember a, a local radio station in New Hampshire did a, a brief video about GPS, and it showed my father with his grand couple of his grandchildren. Uh, playing around with a, um, a a phone. It wasn't a smartphone, but he was having problems with it and was joking about that. I can invent GPS, but I, I don't know how these doggone phones work. Um, <laughs> so, so he saw a fair bit of it. And um, I think he was just amazed. And trying again to, uh, to get uh, one of my dad's colleagues Pete Wilhelm, who designed all four Timation satellites, he said the Navy didn't really know what, what to make of my father. You know, he just was had too many I, brilliant ideas. Oh, well, it sounds like he was able to slip plenty of brilliance into some really lasting projects. And and of course the uh, the history wars <laughs> still go on. Um, one of the things which started me researching it in 2005 was just reading so many accounts about the history of GPS and comparing them with the early documents. And there was such a vast gulf between what people claimed and what the, what the documents told me uh, that, that I decided 
gee, I, I needed to get this down while a lot of the participants were still alive. Yeah, tell me about that. So you must have had some really incredible conversations with these people. Well, one, one big advantage I had was my father's network. So I, I talked with people like Bob Kern, who designed the first cesium atomic clocks, uh, launched in NTS2 in, 60, in 70, 77. We, we interviewed a number of people that it was their only interview about their role in GPS. And it's, it's amazing but sobering. I was looking the other day, people I've interviewed, how many of them are still with us. What do you see as the future of GPS? Do you think that technology has reached its peak utility or could you imagine new advances that we can't imagine now? Um, we're now launching GPS-3 satellites, which have more powerful signals and more frequencies. But I think eventually we will go beyond GPS. Like I mentioned, uh, uh, improved in inertial navigation systems that are not subject to jamming or spoofing, uh, more powerful enhanced LORAN systems that can be used to supplement GPS. I think GPS will become more precise, but, but the limitations, again, jamming and spoofing, uh, will lead to other systems, especially inertial navigation. What is it that you personally find most interesting about GPS technology? Going into a strange city, being able to pull up, uh, this is combination GPS and the internet, but being able to pull up you know, 10 hotels within two miles of where I am, um, or restaurants, I, I just find that marvelous. Yeah, it's like and, magic, isn't it? I feel that oh, way too, actually. <laughs> my first handheld Garmin from the late, I think I bought it in 2007, and we were using it. Uh, my father was born in a small town in northeastern Vermont called Crassberry Common, and he was living in New Hampshire. So we were navigating to uh, Crassberry's old home day by the handheld Garmin. And uh, my, uh, my dad found it uh, uh, wonderful to be, be using the fruits of his invention to get back to his old hometown by the uh, quickest route. Oh, that's amazing. I love that story. I mean, you know, I have a terrible sense of direction. I just always have. And I live in London and I lived in London a previous time that was just before the public explosion of GPS technology. And it came out in this machine called a TomTom, -tom, which you could you know, plug into your, you know, back when cars had those, those round cigarette lighter plugs and, yep. and it would tell you where to go. But, but, you know, before that, everybody relied on this gigantic, thick book. And it was a book called the A to Z, you know, the A to Z, but the Z is the British pronunciation. And it had all of the streets of London. But the trick was that you would get to the end of a page, you know, London sprawls on for miles, it's huge. And you'd have to turn to the page where the, 
the map had left off, but it never was the immediate page after. So you'd be driving. I just remember moving here the first time I was driving a stick shift on the, you know, quote unquote, wrong side of the road, flipping this book in my lap. I had a baby screaming in the backseat. It's a miracle I didn't kill myself or somebody else. So, you know, GPS really has this um, unique capacity to take super high tech and just revolutionize daily experience for everybody. Well, they used to joke that battles always occur on the edge of the map. So, uh, well, uh, several occurred for me as I was swearing, as I was trying to find the connection, that's for sure. My, my baby seemed to have grown up okay, not terribly permanently harmed by it, but it was stressful. Richard, do you think you would have made a successful physicist? And well, I guess a second question. Did you ever think about following in your dad's footsteps? I don't think I have the practical skills. I'm a little more of an ivory tower person. I don't think I could have combined the, the intellectual with the practical being able to help design the first satellite. I'd be just a visionary without, with, without that concrete, would depend on other people. And and my father had both skills, so uh, so it was unusual in that respect. Yeah, well, it sounds like it, and you know, the whole modern world owes a great deal to to men like your father. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Richard, and share your memories as well as all of your own research into this amazing technology that that we call GPS today. Thank you. I enjoyed it greatly. Richard's account of satellite development and its frankly astonishing range of applications since is testament to what's possible when brilliant ideas, viable technology, and above all, the money come together to seed innovation that continues to deliver long after its launch. But it's also a cautionary tale with real implications for every single one of us who benefit from the continued fruits of this high-tech alchemy day in and day out. If it's increasingly difficult to imagine navigating life without our little pocket wizards, equally, it's impossible to ignore the dark side to this always-on, always-plugged-in technology. To put it bluntly, these information channels, they're two-way streets. And it's abundantly clear in the proliferating use and occasional misuse of consumer information tracking that we're flirting with the kind of Orwellian surveillance apparatus that has no place in a free society. A sobering truth, but one we'd do well to keep in mind the next time we log in and surrender our anonymity in return for directions to the nearest burrito joint. Thanks, as always, for listening. And until next time, stay safe. Hey there. You can follow today's guest on Twitter at R-D-E-I-L, info and episode description. As always, we're on Twitter at Working OT Series with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. You can support the show and gain access to loads of bonus content at patreon.com slash working overtime. Please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out about the show. And of course, share us with the fellow time travelers in your life. Until next week. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, 
and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. 